0: and welcome to chapter 58 of A History of England. This is where we'll look at how the British government, having dug itself into a hole over the American colonies, made a brief attempt to get out of it, and then dug deeper. I'm David Beeson. George Grenville, ousted as Prime Minister in 1765, was replaced by a very different man, Charles Watson Wentworth. Does the second part of that surname ring a small bell? If it does, congratulations to you, since it was a long time ago that we first came across it, way back in Chapter 17. Thomas Wentworth was the first Earl of Stratford, the man who begged Charles I to sign his death warrant, rather than save him at the cost of fanning even more resentment against himself. It was an astonishing example of self-sacrifice in loyalty to a king who certainly didn't deserve that much. Well, Charles Watson Wentworth was a distant descendant. In the usual confusing manner, however, I won't be referring to him as Watson Wentworth but as Rockingham because he was the second Marquis of Rockingham and, as you'll remember, we tend to refer to a British noble by an aristocratic alias rather than by a name. In passing, let's note that Rockingham ensured the election to Parliament of a remarkable man who became his secretary, the Irish writer and thinker Edmund Burke. He's seen by many as the father of modern conservatism. But what this conservative wanted to conserve was often ancient freedoms he saw as fundamental constitutional rights, making him often speak out as forcefully for individual freedoms as any liberal might. In particular, he championed the rights of the American colonists, which he saw as just another instance of long-established British liberties. To me, the most striking event of Rockingham's earlier political career occurred when he had to put down anti-military enlistment riots in Sheffield, which he did without resorting to military force. It's perhaps not surprising that a man with that background, called upon to form a government to follow Grenville's, decided to try a more conciliatory approach to the American colonies. He quickly came round to the idea of doing away with the Stamp Act and proposed its repeal to Parliament. From our previous episode, you'll remember the stirring speech Isaac Barré gave against that measure when it was first introduced. In the debate on its repeal, a still more significant speaker, the former Prime Minister in all but name, William Pitt, would denounce it in terms just as rigging. This was not the same Pitt, however. He was no longer the man he once had been. Tortured by gout and sapped by ill health generally, he'd refused to form a government himself when the King asked him to after the fall of Grenville. But now, Despite his debilitating illness and his pain, he made it down to the House of Commons to make what would be the crowning speech of his career in that house. It was a speech that would fully justify the nickname that his admirers had given him of the Great Commoner. Just as Barry had answered Charles Townsend, now Pitt answered George Grenville, a former Prime Minister just like Pitt himself. The two had once been friends and allies, and they were indeed brothers-in-law, but by this time they were fiercely opposed to each other in politics. Grenville, whose pet project the Stamp Act had been, defended it in powerful terms. As he told the House of Commons, paying the tax was simply the colonists' duty in return for the benefits Britain provided. Protection and obedience are reciprocal. Great Britain protects America, America is bound to yield obedience. If not, tell me when the Americans were emancipated. When they want the protection of this kingdom, they are always ready to ask for it. That protection has always been afforded them in the most full and ample manner. The nation has run itself into an immense debt to give them their protection, and now they are called upon to contribute a small share towards the public expense, an expense arising from themselves. They renounce your authority, insult your officers, and break out, I might also say, into open rebellion. Despite his sickness, Pitt had lost none of his fire. The rectal man declared, The gentleman tells us America is obstinate. America is almost in open rebellion. I rejoice that America has resisted. Three million of people so dead to all feelings of liberty as voluntarily to submit to be slaves would have been fit instruments to make slaves of the rest. Perhaps we can note in passing that a sizable number of the three million Americans, more like 2.2 million at this time, own slaves themselves. However, in that difficult era, the lack of liberty of the Africans in the colonies seems not to have excessively troubled any of the fine orators who spoke out in defence of freedom. Clearly, when it came to liberty, what mattered to them was that enjoyed by the whites. Pitt went on to denounce the practice of taxing without consent, citing the example of England itself. Even under former arbitrary reigns, parliaments were ashamed of taxing a people without their consent, and allowed them representatives. What Pitt is asserting is a principle of freedom that was held in common between the colonies and the mother country. It's worth comparing his words with those of one of the resolutions of the Stamp Act Congress in America that we talked about last time. It is inseparably essential to the freedom of a people and the undoubted right of Englishmen that no taxes be imposed on them, but with their own consent given personally or by their representatives. Pitt's speech was an indictment of this attempt to undermine shared freedoms. Since the accession of King William, many ministers, some of them great, others of more moderate abilities, have taken the lead of government. None of these thought, or even dreamt, of robbing the colonies of their constitutional rights. One of the most striking of Pitt's remarks was his answer to Grenville's claim that the colonies were never freed from their obligations to the mother country. The gentleman asks, When were the colonies emancipated? But I desire to know, When were they made slaves? As repeal of the Stamp Act was being considered, the Commissioner in London for the Colony of Pennsylvania, Benjamin Franklin, was also called upon to address Parliament. Not as a member, of course. There were no American MPs. He'd been summoned to provide information on American reaction to the Stamp Act, on which he answered 174 questions. For instance, on the question of the mentality of the colonies towards Britain at the end of the Seven Years' War, Franklin replied the best in the world. They submitted willingly to the Government of the Crown and paid in all their courts obedience to Acts of Parliament. Sadly, there had been serious changes since then. Asked about the present attitude of the colonists, he informed Parliament, oh, very much altered. What would happen if the Stamp Act were not repealed? Franklin was clear. A total loss of the respect and affection the people of America bear to this country and of all the commerce that depends on that respect and affection. The word commerce there, by the way, probably didn't just mean trade, but also simply communication and exchanges of views and culture. Peter demanded that the Stamp Act be repealed absolutely, totally and immediately. Franklin had given his ominous warning. With the Rockingham government committed to repeal, the Act was indeed repealed. Parliament voted by 276 to 168 to back Rockingham, a substantial and clear majority, though it also shows that a large minority was still in favour of preserving the tax. Nor should we be misled by the size of the majority for repeal, There wasn't anything like complete unanimity between the Westminster parliamentarians who supported the Americans and the colonists themselves. In the very speech against the act that he delivered with such power, Pitt had proclaimed, Let the sovereign authority of this country over the colonies be asserted in as strong terms as can be devised, and be made to extend every point of legislation whatever. That we may bind their trade, confine their manufactures, and exercise every power whatsoever, except that of taking money out of their pockets without their consent. Taxation without consent was unacceptable to Pitt and to other opponents of the Stamp Act. But that didn't mean that they were prepared to give up on Parliament's supposed control over the colonies. On the contrary, on every matter other than taxation... Parliament had and should retain complete sovereignty. That even included what Pitt thought of as external taxation, in other words, tariffs on trade. We may bind their trade, Pitt had declared. The Rockingham Ministry agreed and followed up the repeal of the Stamp Act with the Declaratory Act. Strictly speaking, it was the American Colonies Act of 1766. Just two months later, in March... It asserted that Parliament possessed the same authority in the colonies as in Britain. It could therefore pass legislation for either territory. The colonists were in turn obliged to comply with such legislation and Britain was entitled to use whatever means necessary to enforce it. Unfortunately, Britain seemed to have lost track of what was happening in the colonies. The great and the good in America, men who in many cases still viewed themselves as loyal subjects of the crown, had begun to flex some new muscles. The Stamp Act Congress, as we've said, was a first instance of the colonists pulling together in a deliberative assembly, called on their own initiative and without any reference to Britain. That smart cookie Benjamin Franklin, as well as giving testimony to Parliament, had also voiced his disquiet in private. He maintained a correspondence with his friend, the Scottish noble Lord Kames, and told him that his time in Britain and the many friendships he'd made there had given him a great love for the country. He wished it prosperity in the union with the colonies, on which alone I think it can be secured and established. In other words, in Franklin's view, British prosperity depended on retaining the colonies. But then came the sting in the tail. As to America, the advantage of such a union to her are not so apparent. By the time of the Stamp Act repeal debate, Americans were beginning to wonder whether their union with Britain was any longer particularly useful to them. That was the great and the good. But out in the colonies the movement had widened considerably, moving beyond the great and the good. It had begun embracing many of the little, and in some cases, not so good. That included, but was not confined to, such movements as the Sons of Liberty. They had shown that they were prepared to take their resistance to what they saw as British misrule further than their social superiors, to the point of violence against those they saw as their oppressors. A declaratory act? It was only useful if you could enforce it and it was beginning to look as though that would take quite a bit of force. A friend of mine once told me that if you have your back to the wall, you can't see the writing on it. The writing for the British Empire was clearly imprinted on its American wall, but Britain didn't even know its back was against that wall and certainly hadn't yet read the writing. It soon would. More of that next time.